Good evening. Welcome to tonight's year on uh, Sunday of Parshas Nosoi. And so we'll go straight into our questions. So last Friday night, that is not uh, two nights ago, but a week ago. So, a young rabbi who has a shul nearby, and he uh, is the only one in his shul who can do maftir, who do the haftar. So every week he does, he has maftir. But his problem was that last the Shabbos. There is the Torah. And for the Torah, it is our custom that the Balkhara has that Aliyah. So he's going to have to have the Aliyah of Torah. And then Maftir. So does he have a double? Does he have two Aliyahs in the one morning? Is that the is that the solution? Or alternatively, could he call up one of his congregants? Who will say the for maftir? They will say the brachas, and he, the rabbi, would read the actual maftir, the actual haftarah, rather. So these are his this couple of options which he was suggesting, which would be better. Now I'm going to tell you, I told him better to take two aliyas rather than giving uh, someone else the maftir and him taking over for actual reading for the navi, but. Thanks to this Shia, I had the impetus to look into it more carefully. And um, perhaps I think I should have told him differently. So I want to discuss with you what is the what are the issues involved here? So we have here the the uh, two addresses where this is discussed is in Simresh Pei Dalad and Resh Pei Base. Resh Pei Base is about Kriya Satoira on Shabbos. Resh Pei Dalad is about Maftir, Haftoira. All right, so we have here a rule, which is Hamaftir Benovi Sorich Shayikra Betoyratchila. Before someone is going to stand up in public and read from the prophets, so he has to first have an aliyah, has to read from the Torah first. We have and say the attendant brachas before and after. After which he will then read from the Novi. And the reason for this, why can't another person be honored to read from the Novi? It shouldn't be that the, Torah, the honor of the Torah and the honor of the Novi are placed on the same level. If the last fellow will be reading only in Novi, just they had an aliyah in Sefer Vayikra, and he has an aliyah in Sefer Yeshaya. It would put Yeshaya and Vayikra on the same pedestal. And therefore, there is an emphasis that he has to first read from Novi, and then read from the Torah, and then he can read from Novi. Therefore, for the Balkhira to call up one of his congregants for maftir 
and the rabbi himself would take over for Haftorah, but he'd, how can he take over for Haftorah if he didn't read the Novi, he didn't read for the Torah just before? Now, this is not so poshut because I know that in the literature circles, Tommy, the followers of the Vilna God, there it's a standard thing that they call up one of the Pekong community for Maftir, and the Balkoira does the Haftoira. The reason for this is because the Vilna Goen introduced to have handwritten scrolls of Novi, like you have a Megillas Esther, you have a scroll of Yeshaya, a scroll of Yermio, etc. Scrolls of the, I guess it's at least uh, at least uh, seven scrolls. Shmuel Malochen, that's four. And then you've got Shai Yermio Yechenskol and Treyoso, it'd have to be four, eight scrolls. So, so they will not go and introduce, uh, reintroduce perhaps, the used scrolls for reading the uh, Mahaftar. Just a second. The, uh, the the handwritten scrolls the handwritten scrolls wouldn't have the vow the vowels and certainly not the note the trop and therefore most people of the community are not able to read the novi from the scroll and therefore the balcoder who's qualified to prepare the parasha he also reads the he reads the novi for them. So how do they get around this? If we said that it's imperative before you read novi to have read in the Torah, so how do they get around this? That there's someone that the balkoira does the reading from the novi on their behalf. So here you have in front of you from the Mishnah Brura. Then this is in Simresh Peidal, and he addresses this, and he's actually I can see he has quoted from the Chaye Adam. So let's, it's almost word for word for the Chayyadim. Nowadays, the Dominic is in some places, to write the Nevi'im on in parchment, and in scroll, like a Sefer If so, he throws in a comment, which is a little bit puzzling. He throws in a comment that the one who's reading Novi, his Moitzi, the congregation, like if he had been reading from the Torah, therefore, it's even permitted to call up for Maftir someone who's unable to read the Novi himself. So the congregant will read the Brochus of the Haftorah before and after. And the, the Balkhoire will read the Haftoire just like he read from the Sefer So clearly, I mean, this is, as I said, the Chayyodom is saying in Alkahila in Vilna, although I don't know, he lived in, in I thought he lived in Danzig, but uh, at any rate, he writes in Alkahila that, that we've introduced to use uh, parchment scrolls for Novi. So it's been introduced that the Balkhoire the does the Haftoire. Now, 
But then I looked at it and look, it's very straightforward. It's very straightforward because like this, what will we say? That it's, it, it's imperative that whoever reads from the Novi has to have read from the Torah. Now, you call up Yankel Reich for Maftir, and then he comes to the half Torah. So Yankel Reich did not read the Torah because it was the Balkaira that read the Torah. Yankel Reich doesn't read the Novi because the Balkaira reads the Novi. So as far as the brochas is concerned, Yankel Reich made a brocha here and brocha there. As far as the actual reading, the Balkaira read here, the Balkaira reads there. So what's the problem? Either way, the one who's has a privilege in Novi had the same privilege in the Torah. Therefore, it's a problem solved. Actually, what's bothering me is you're reading these words of the Alter Rebbe. The one who reads the Novi has to have read in the Torah. Actually, we don't do that. Most of us, if we're called up for Maftir and have Torah, Yes, we're capable of reading the Haftarah with the trop from the printed volume, but we don't read from the Torah. It's the Balkhoidah's reading from the Torah. So how are we fulfilling this halacha of the one who reads Novi has to have first read in the Torah? When I didn't read in the Torah, it was the Balkhoidah. Okay, so I murmured along with him quietly, a little bit shvach. Well, how, did, how did we fulfill this? Go to me, this is actually what the what is being said here in this line in the Mishnah Bruno, which is, as I said, is the words of Chayodon. The Balkoider is reading on behalf of the Tzibur. So therefore he says like this, when, I, when I'm reading, when I, the Balkoider, when I'm reading in Sefer Yeshaya, I'm doing it on your behalf. You had the Aliyah in, in Vayikra, and I, and I read it for you. And true. And now I'm reading for you from Sefer Yeshaya. That's not a problem. So let me now switch this the other way around. I had Aliyah from Maftir, but it did not lay in the Torah. But actually, the Balkoider who read, he was Moitzi me. When he read, the Maftir in Sefer Vayikra, he did it on my behalf. Okay, so I did read in the Torah. Of course, he was right to see everyone, but particularly when I stood up there and I said the brochas, and, and he read, he was reading on my behalf. So he, I did read in the Torah vicariously through him. Okay, so then I was quoted by Torah, and therefore I'm, a, I'm, I'm allowed to read from the Novi. Good. So that's that's the, the normal thing. But now to call in a third person, neither the Balkhoid nor the Mr. Maftir, call in a third person to come and take over to read Maf to read the Haftoira, that is problematic. So then you have the scenario that someone Reuven buys Maftir Yoino for nine hundred pounds, but he can't read it. Shimon can read it, but he doesn't have 900 pounds. So then they do a, 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 a they make a, a partnership. I'll pay and you'll read. That's not okay. Because Shimon cannot read Maftir Yoino unless he read be, before that in the Chumash, in, 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 the, in the Chumash, right. So now, coming back to the question which was asked, 
can now I've, I've, I've read the Teichacha and now it comes to Maftir. Can I give one of the congregants the Aliyah of Maftir and I will take over to read the text of the Novi? And the answer is yes, because I read in the Torah also. Okay, so I read for you, so I'm reading the Torah for you. So either way, it's it's the same thing. Okay, that's the way I think it, it is legitimate, contrary to what I'd said to the fellow on the Friday night. Now, just one more thing. Reading in the Alter Rebbe's Shekhanara, in, so he has here the following statement. If there's no one in the shul who can say maftir, unless, besides any of the seven who had an aliyah, so then one of the seven should have, have maftir. The fact that he read Shlishi or Ravi or even Shvi does not count because Kaddish has been said in, in, in between. All right, so again, if there's no one else in the shul, you had seven aliyahs, and then the other three gentlemen are not able to do maftir. So then one of the seven gentlemen will have maftir and will have a double aliyah. Then he says, If any of the other people are who are present are able to do maftir, then, then give the maftir to one of the people who hasn't had an aliyah yet, rather than doing the same person who had an aliyah in this morning to have again an aliyah. To have twice an aliyah in the same morning is not straightforward. It's only when there's no option. So now I'm asking the question, if it's so simple that the Balkoira can take over for Haftoira, so what's all this about? There's no one else in the shul who can do maftir. Let, the, let them have do their brachas and the, and the Balkoira will, do, will, read, will read the Novi. Possibly, the answer to that is that the people, the other three people in the shul or more, not only are they not able to read in Yeshaya, but they even will struggle to read the brachas. The brachas before and after they have Torah, they can't handle that either. In that case, if they're so incapable not even to read the brachas, then, then one of the seven who had the aliyahs till now will have an, a, a double aliyah. But if one of the less capable people is able to do the brachas, then I feel that the recommendation would be, contrary to what I said to this fellow on Friday night, the recommendation would be that let that, that person who did not have an aliyah, let him have maftir and you'll read and let him say the brachas of Avtaira and you'll read. Right, let's move on to something. So someone is challenging that it says that the Perth al Rebbe's wording is if there's no one who's able to be maftir benovi. And I'm kvetching into this if there's no one who's able to read. Okay, good, good point taken. Right. Let's move on. So a very common question, we've had this during this past week from half a dozen perhaps, him asking what's the story of starting Mayriv, the second night of Shavuos, davening Mayriv early. Now, obviously, in Chabad itself, we daven Mayriv on time. We don't do an early Mayriv. And that's going back in the Alter Rebbe. 
that we don't we don't do an early maide. Although it's difficult, and we know it's difficult, and yet we don't we don't fiddle around with this mother maide. We wait till nacht. We have a maide then. But many many shuls and chabad houses they will do maide early, and so long as it's after plagamintha, with the exception of the first night of shavuos, where first night of shavuos we don't want to cut short the Tamimos, the 49 days of Sphira. Therefore, the first night of Shavuos, not only Chabad, in many, many communities, they will stick it out and, and wait for Mairev till, till 10, 10, 30, whatever it may be. I remember I was once in Leeds for over Shavuos, and it was in the Eitzchayim, like a United Synagogue type of, type of show. And they waited till 10, 10, 10, 10, 30, whatever. It was more extreme than here. Okay. But what about the second night? Is there any leeway to do Maidiv early the second night? So two points. Number one, this year, this Shavuos, the second night is Shabbos. And therefore, it's much more straightforward to start Maidiv the second night early. From Plagamincha, you can do Maidiv and have make Kiddush, etc. Had it not been such a just let's say it was just Shavuos is Wednesday and Thursday. So here we read this is from the Sefer Pesnesivimstayashlichas. You got the references there, but the, here we have from the Levush, lived about four hundred some years ago, and he writes that Maidiv the second night of Yom Tov, whether it's Shavuos Pesach or Sukkot. Generally, Mairiv should be left till late, till after nightfall. The reason being, we don't want, if you daven Mairiv early, then there is the risk of Melocha being done on that day for the night. So let's say um, Shabbos came in this past Shabbos. Was it 8.30? Was it, so the sunset was about quarter to nine. So let's say if you would daven Mairiv half past seven, and then you start your meal at eight o'clock. What would, so that, that's still Yom Tov, Yom Tov Rishon. What would happen if you put up a soup at quarter past, a bottle of soup at eight o'clock, a quarter past eight, and it only becomes ready, because it's a small flame, it's only ready at 10 o'clock. So what have you done? You've cooked on Yom, the real Yom Tov, which is Yom Tov Rishon, quarter past eight was still the real Yom Tov, and it was only for the benefit of after the real Yom Tov, which is Yom Tov Shani. You're not allowed to prepare for one day to the other. So for this reason, it's customary not to bring Maidiv early, so as not to allow or not to, not to cause the likelihood of Melocha being done on day one for day two. And next point is that on the Luach, on the calendars, it says second night, you can't light candles until quarter past 10, let's say. So again, because if you light the candles earlier, so then you're preparing on Yom Tov Rishon and benefiting it from Yom Tov Shani, which is not okay. However, if the meal is going to be eaten early, and if necessary, that is legitimate, so then let's say you're going to eat the meal at eight o'clock, then you'd light candles before the meal 
and you'd make Kiddush at eight o'clock. That's only addressed in Very interesting. The Ben Yishchai says, he says it's a good idea to do the meal early because he talks about the flies being so abundant at sunset. Therefore, start the meal early as you shouldn't have flies in your food. Be that, be that as it may, there is a hatter to do the meal earlier on the second evening of Yom Tov, but then you'd have to be very careful not to do any malacha before sunset, which is only going to be for the benefit of uh, after after sunset or after nightfall. So that's why it's generally not a good idea, but if it's necessary, it is an option. As I say, this this Yom Tov because it's the, the second night is, is Shabbos. No malacha is going to be done in any case. And you're allowed to do malacha because of the aid of Tafshilin. Because you make aid of Tafshilin, you're allowed to do malacha on Friday for the benefit of Shabbos. Therefore, it's not a problem to do Mairiv early and to do Kiddush early, etc. Which brings us kind of to the following question. Here is about the aid of Tafshilin permits us to cook on Friday. For the benefit of Shabbos. So normally on Yom Tov, you're only allowed to cook for the very same day. If I would cook on Yom Tov for after Yom Tov, I would be a violation. So although our Torah allows me to cook Ochel Nefesh, I'm allowed to cook on Yom Tov for the day, but I'm not allowed to cook for after Yom Tov. What would happen if I violated this? If I, on Yom Tov, I baked something for next week, making a bar mitzvah next week, I need some extra cakes. So I made some cakes on Yom Tov at spare time the afternoon. I baked cakes. So do I get malchus? I know it's not not legal in this country. Um, if there would it be a Sanhedrin, would I get malchus? So there is a a, a get out clause. It was five o'clock in the afternoon when I made those cakes. But what would happen if at six o'clock a bunch of hungry bocherim came through my door? Oh, I've got something to feed them. So then, plausibly, I, it was usable. It was. It could have been served on the Yom Tov itself. Therefore, I'm not. I'm not punishable for what I did because it could have been used for the very day. So when is the violation a violation? If I took a steak or something, some meat which takes two hours to cook, and I put it to cook an hour, half an hour before sunset. In a way, there's no way it would be ready for today. So I did an act of cooking, and there's no way it could be edible today. So I did a cooking on the first day, on Yom Tov, for the day after. That's where I would be in violation and get Malchus. So let's read this inside. This is an Al-Turibus Shechonaruch, Simitof Kuv Chof Zayin. And he says, the Eiv Tafshilin only permits us to do the needs of Shabbos on Yom Tov, only when there's plenty of time before the end of the day. That there is enough time. That if Orchim would suddenly arrive unexpectedly, and they haven't eaten today, so then what you cook today is they're going to be able to eat it now before sunset, before twilight. But if the Melocha which you did was so close that there's no time to benefit from the Melocha, on today, so then that's Osram in HaToyra to do this. He doesn't talk about the Malkas here, but okay. Erev Tafshilin only works 
to that does not that that of Shilin doesn't undo something which is forbidden in a Torah. Since it's, people are not so familiar with this halacha, that's why when Yom Tov is on a Friday, it was common custom to do Ma'ariv a little earlier, before nightfall. So that in that way, people knew that they have to be in time for Ma'ariv. Therefore, they would make sure that the stuff for Shabbos would be ready before the early Ma'ariv. Okay, so you said before, there's a seems to be even a positive thing, not only just a heter, but even a positive thing to do Ma'ariv early when you so there's an Erev Tavshilin, which I may have mentioned before. Our minhig is that we skip the first six chapters from the Chunaranano and we start from Mizmir David. And possibly that's one of the reasons in order that Ma'ariv should start, start a little bit earlier. It doesn't work. No mind. Um, uh, all right. So now, so according to what we're reading here, if I want to put up a cholent this Friday, so that cholent has to be edible before sunset. Good. Comes along the kits of Shikhanara and says very similar, it should be finished before Shabbos, and the food which you put aside to insulate, to keep it warm for Shabbos, should be insulated He's talking about insulation in a way that it's also going to keep on cooking in some way. It should be edible before Benashmoshis, at least Shlishbishulon, at least a third of its cooking. So now let's say a cholent takes an hour and a half to cook. So the Kitsa Shikhanoruch says, so you can put up your cholent a half an hour before sunset. Now, as you know, I'm, I, I worked on an edition of the of the Kitzah in with Psokim, with the decisions of the Alter Rebbe. So someone challenged me and says, how come in that Kitzah we don't have a comment here that the Alter Rebbe disagrees with this heter? So the, again, the Alter Rebbe says that the food has to be edible, that you can enjoy it by bayayim. The Kitzah says, so long as it's a third cooked, that's enough. So, according to the altar, it looks like before you read the Kitzah, you have to put up your child an hour and a half before sunset. According to the Kitzah, it's enough to put a half an hour before sunset. It's quite a significant difference. So, how does the altar ever disagree with this? Now, the source of the Kitzah is from the premier garden. And we know there's those gangsters known as Ben, there's a gangster known as Ben Dursoy. And we know on Shabbos, if you cook raw food and you didn't make it finished, you just made it a third cooked, you'd get punished for, you'd get, get punished in Besdin with all the um, capital punishment for what? For cooking a raw food and making it edible. Who's it edible for? Oh, there's a gangster called Ben Dursoy. He eats his food on the run. Therefore, you cooked because it's edible for him. So I wrote to him this, my correspondent, I wrote to him this. When it came to Skila, in the Bezdin, you said, oh, it's cooked, it's edible for the Bender Soy. You can get Skila. And now I cooked on Friday. And before Shabbos came, before sunset, Bender Soy could have eaten it. Other people would not. So if Bender Soy is a factor to punish the Skila, so Bender Soy should equally be a factor to acquit me from Malchus because it was edible, Bayoim was edible on Friday before sunset. 
I feel very strongly that this point which the which the uh, which the Prima Godim, the Kitsu is saying it's got it's very very convincing that so long as the food is edible even for Bnei Derosoi, if it's edible before the before sunset, that should be enough that it shouldn't be um, you know there shouldn't be Isuminatoira and therefore it's permitted to do so. Um, so he answers this correspondent of mine. He writes, but what would happen if someone took food? from the fridge, which is a third cooked, and he put it on the fire just five minutes before sunset. And in those five minutes, it doesn't cook at all, but then it's going to then cook the rest. And in Hashabis, even though it's past Bender soy, but anything from Bender soy till all the way fully air, fully cooked is an act of cooking. So if you take food, which is a third cooked, Third cook, and you put it on the on the stove, on yomta, and it cooks cooks further, and it's not and no benefit today, only for tonight. Then you're in trouble, which I, I think is right. I think he's right, but um, if you did the act of putting the child up in a half an hour before sunset, I think that that that, that would be um, would be it would not be a problem. Taking out raw food, sorry, um, a third cooked and making it. Um, fully cooked on Yom for Shabbos would be a problem. So I'm I'm really um, not sure whether we have to make a comment in the Kitzur Shekhanaruch that the Alter Rebbe disagrees. He's talking about placing it there. How long in advance it has to be placed there? He's not talking about taking stuff out of the fridge. He's talking about how long in advance. And he says it's if it's a third cooked. Um, if if it's if you put it in in time that a third will be cooked before. Okay, okay, let's move on. That conversation is an ongoing, it's a work in progress. Okay, so last week we had a discussion about lighting candles and whether a man should cover his eyes when he lights the candles. So one of our listeners of the recording asks, he's a Bochen Yeshiva, and is asking in his Yeshiva, they have dorms they have like apartments not in the yeshiva itself a little bit uh separate a few minutes away i was asking whether the bochrim need to light candles in the dorm now bochrim don't necessarily calculate risks very well but if i was running a yeshiva i'd be very anxious about bochrim leaving flames because they've got a greater degree of uh, confidence that everything's going to be okay, uh, especially if there's damage, they don't have to pay for it. So now, should the Bokharim have to light in their dorms? So the answer is no, not just because of safety or, or reasons. The, re the word is like this. I asked the Bokhar, is it your apartment or is it Yeshiva's apartment? See, sometimes Bokharim rent their own apartment. If it's their apartment, then they should be lighting there. But here is the following. The yeshiva provide food and they provide lodging. And they part of that provision is also provide the lighting. So there's one provider called the yeshiva, which provides food and beds and lighting. One bocher is lighting, should that so it should be, I, I hope it's done in every yeshiva, 
and when I was in Brunoir, that was done regularly. There were candles in the dining room. One Bocha, it was his job. Every Friday, he lit candles, and they were actually there was a niche, like a raised up level. And so when we bent, when we had our meal in the yeshiva, there were those candles which are visible. He made his bracha on behalf of the yeshiva, which is the host, and that bracha was covering for all the food, for all the eating, um, this is the lighting where they're eating, and for all the other lighting in the other areas of the yeshiva. And therefore, there's no need for the bochum to write, light their own candles, because they, they, uh, the boarding and the lighting in the boarding is all provided by the yeshiva, and one bracha has been said, and that is in, incorporating, in, including for all of them. Separate question asked, does the light in the bathroom, does that count for the mitzvah of Hadloch Asneris? The answer is, I think, yes. Not, you wouldn't make a bracha necessarily, and certainly not inside. But if that's enough for you to be able to use your room safely, to be able to open the door when necessary, that's an ensuite bathroom. And you open the door, and then you can see what you're doing in your room. And then when you want to sleep, you close the door. But if that works, that's 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 fine. Yeah. Right. Let's move on. So here was a Shaila came to my attention that in a particular institution, there was a builder and he accidentally spilt some paint. And then some kids were running around, they didn't realize this paint and they trod in it and they perhaps got their clothes um, damaged, ruined from the paint. So now, does the builder have a duty to pay for the damage caused by the paint left um, exposed? So of course, there's a moral level, but we're talking about strictly lahalocha. Um, so now there's, if I leave something which is could cause damage, I did not inflict the damage. I left something dangerous and the victim came into the damage. So again, it's not that the damage went into him, but he came, so that's called boir. We have in the Torah about a person dug a pit, and then, so then someone, an animal was, was, was uh, walking and didn't notice and fell into the pit and gets damaged, hurt, etc., uh, killed. So then the Torah says that the Baal Abor, the one who dug the pit, has to pay the damages. Now here we have in Shulchan Aruch, it's in the Gemara, but it's in his, they brought out Shulchan Aruch, that if Kalim, if utensils fell into the Beir, got broken, damaged, the Baal Abor, the owner of that damage, uh, cause of damage, is Potter. Because we learn from the Pesach, they will fall therein a, uh, an ox or a donkey. And the, toy, the Chazal infer from this, the liability of the boyer, the, the owner of the boyer is only if an animal fell in. But if a person fell in, so then he's not liable for the damage for the, for the person. Chamer, the Torah says two examples. Shoyre chamer, oxodoki. Why is it an extra word? Chamoy v'loy kalim. Only if the victim is is an animal. 
But if utensils fell in, then again he's not liable for that damage. Let's read further. That which the owner of the pit is exempt for payment is only if he, the person died. But if the person got harmed, had to have you know, hospitalization, treatment, then the one who dug the pit is liable for the damages to his victim. That's said with humans. But for utensils, which got damaged, is potter. So for inanimate objects, whether they got totally broken or got damaged, so I left an exposed cause of damage, factor of damage, and utensils got damaged because of it, so the Torah does not oblige me to pay. So therefore, therefore, the the builder was perhaps morally wrong, but is not liable to pay for the damage to the clothing, which are utensils. Um, now, I just recently was listening to a shear online. What would happen if, by the next election in Eretz Israel, what would happen if there's a there's an overriding majority of Frumayidin. Then the Medina would have to run according to Halacha. So then how would you, you know, a lot of stuff is going to be difficult. So this kind of thing, yeah. Um, how would this, I don't know how it wash. Um, a bit of a pun in this instance. But uh, how, how would it, so what, what, one of the points which they're saying is that, that, the Bezdin would be um, would be empowered to to enact rules even beyond what's the Chiyavahalacha. So if there's going to be for Takana Satsiba, for the benefit of the welfare of the community, the, the Bezdin may apply a penalty, even though, according to Hechosha Mishpat, it's it not applicable. So what would be if this would come to, uh, it would in, in a more established community, uh, in a situation where we'd be high beyond the Chiyav of Shukhanoruch, possibly. But strictly speaking, according to Shukhanoruch, the, uh, the owner of the, the, of, the, of the damage is not liable for the damage. I think there's just one, one interesting, how much more say it was in a private domain, it doesn't, it doesn't make it uh, worse. Um, one interesting thing is, I think that in I once when I was once if you remember many years ago, there was a factory in India, which had a major disaster, and it was a whole discussion: who is liable for disaster? Was it was it called Bhopal? I don't remember. It could be. Um, is it the designer? Is it the builder? Is it the the uh, the owner of the factory? It was like a whole discussion. And at the time, someone asked me a halacha view about it, and just a, a feeling about this. In civil law, they, I, either it's either the designer or the architect or the builder or the there has to be someone has to pick up the tab. What about the ebishter? They don't have that. Therefore, they have, someone has to pick up the tab. Grenfell Towers. Who has to be, who's liable for Grenfell Towers? Keep on pushing around. 
but in in Torah, sometimes there's a damage which Torah says the the party who's the cause he's not punishable. So who is who? So who gave the damage? It came from Hashem. This person is not liable to pay, and so it's a damage which you'll just see. It's a damage from which was sent by Hashem. Um, let's go to the chat over here. In your example, one of the bocher lighting candles for yeshiva does he dictate Shabbos for all the bocher? No, I don't think so. It doesn't. The fact that he, if he lights the candles a little bit early, I don't think that is. He's, he's doing the mitzvah of Adlokas Neiris. He's not doing Kabbalah Shabbos for everyone. For that matter, when a woman lights candles, it doesn't make a Shabbos for her husband. Right, but she's doing the mitzvah for him. Right, um, let's move on. So here, a boy in my class in the uh, Yeshiva Katana in Golden Screen, he asked me a challenging question. You know, in Chabad, it's quite common for us, especially Shabbos, to daven a little bit later. The latest time for Shema is... Well, it's nine o'clock, nine thirty, whatever it is. Around then, when we're davening, we're starting hoidu at ten o'clock. So by the time you get to Shema, it's too late. So what do we do? We say Shema earlier. So you wake up and uh, whenever, whatever time you wake up, and you say Shema, three parshas, and then you yoitzer with that. So now he's asking. It says in the Gemara, if a person didn't read Shema until after fourth or the third hour. Says, what's the rule of the 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 late Shema, which is encapsulated with Yoitzer Oyer and Avas Oylom and Amesvayatzib? It's there, but does it have the din of Shema that you're not allowed to interrupt for many things, or is it Koyer Batoyer? But Koyer Batoyer allowed to interrupt. This was his question, which I think was a very good question. So I looked around and eventually came to this comment from the Brajana Rov for Das Torah and he writes the following those who read the Shema early in the morning and then later when they sing the davening they're saying Birches Krishna and they're saying Shema again so he says it's has the din of Bein HaProkim if there's two levels there's Emsa HaPedik and Bein HaProkim so he says it's like Bein HaProkim although it's the middle of a parasha it doesn't have the Full impact of in middle of Shema because of in Yotzeh Shema, and therefore you'd be allowed whatever you're allowed to answer Ben Haprokim, you'd be allowed to answer there. Um, I'm going to leave that over there, and we're going to go on to the next question. So here, one of our listeners asks me the following: You know, you've got these boards in shuls with the number of the Oymel, the day of the week, whatever. And you've got numbers and or, or letters, and you slide slide them into a slide into a track, and so it becomes chavzayin, whatever it could be. Uh, are you allowed to put letters, separate letters, into that slide into that track to create a number? Now there's a separate type which I haven't seen in years. I'm sure a lot of you remember these pegboards. You had a board. It's got you know. A thousand holes or ten to five thousand holes, and you have letters which we've got little, um, uh, little, you know, how do you say, studs at the back, and you fit them in, and it says, you know, bingo at, 
etc. Outside, so that, to do those, that's not a, not allowed on Shabbos. Put, to put letters in those pegboards. Now, what we're reading over here is that to, to pin letters onto a surface, that's not okay. But then he says the following. This is from the Piskei Chuvas. Um, so he writes the following. If you've got letters which are written on a card and to put them into a track and they're going to now form words, form a message, so long as they're not held firmly there, then that is okay. That's not, that, that's not an issue. So let's let's compare to, let's say, a jigsaw puzzle. Are you allowed to put make a jigsaw puzzle on Shabbos? So you've got the more, uh, should we say, childish ones, where if you pick up one piece, the rest remain on the table. So to make such a to do such a puzzle on Shabbos is okay because the pieces, therefore, the picture not hasn't become one unit. You've got the more, should we say, adult puzzles. That's a bit of a adults playing puzzles is interesting, but never mind. Um, so the adult puzzles. So then they you stick them together, then you can put the whole thing together. That would not be allowed on Shabbos because there've been the the parts, and therefore the pictures has become one unit. So what's being said over here? You've got this track, and you put in letters, but they're not getting they're not stuck there. And they're easy to slide, easy to slide in and out. Therefore, that's not a problem. It's not called writing. Writing is the definition of writing is letters stuck onto a surface. Okay. Now, one of our listeners asks the question: Can may one use a knife sharpener for fleshiks and milchiks? Does a knife sharpener have to be kosher? Could you go to a local? There may be some facility locally where they've got machines for sharpening knives, non, a non-kosher place, could you sharpen your knives there? So the basic answer is that interaction of taste is you, it would be with hot, with heat, and, and with liquid. So that's, that, that, and if that's not there, then that would be okay. So this is from a sefer called Shevet HaKahosi, but it, this is, I believe, it would be across, accepted across the board. To sharpen a knife, you are allowed to sharpen a knife uh, on uh, on a sharpener, sharpening stone, whatever, even though it may have been used for non-kosher foods. Or you are similarly allowed to um, sharpen a knife on a milk knife, a flesh knife, on a milk knife with the same sharpener. But then he says, if it's a kind of sharpener which is used, they use um, a lot of water during the sharpening, then one shouldn't use the same sharpener for uh, one for the other. But if it's just a little bit of, of water, so then he says that's okay. So basically, generally for a knife sharpener, you can use the same knife sharpener for fleshics or milchics um, because, because there's no significant liquid to say it became hot and it took the taste from the knife into the stone and then from the stone back into the knife, all of that is not happening and therefore it's okay. Right, one of our listeners asks me for a little bit of clarity about non, uh, about Paspalter. As you may know, several years ago, the Sfardi Kashish Authority in this country made an arrangement with one of the big baking um, chains, Warburton's or something, 
and that their bread should be without any animal fat. And so if you, let's say you're in Cornwall or whatever it may be, in Circon Trent, you could go into a shop and buy Warburton's bread and you know that it doesn't have any trapeze ingredients. Of course, there's the other issue that it's not passus royal, it's pass, the word palter means bread from a baker. So we do know that there's halacha, that Hachom introduced that we shouldn't be buying bread from, made from a, by a goy. Then we have here, the Shekhanarach says the following, there are places, they are more lenient and they allow buying bread from a kosher baker where there's no Jewish baker available because it's a shah because it's, you need to have something to eat. So they would buy from a Goisha baker when there's no Jewish bakery available. Of course, we're not talking about chas with trafe ingredients. We're talking about it's just like French bread, which is just flour and water and salt, but it's made by a goy. So there are places where they would permit using that bread from a Goisha bakery. Now, those who would take this heter, even when Jewish bread is available also to buy the goisha, the bread from a goisha bakery. So that's what we have here in the Shulchan Aruch. Now we're looking at the Kitsa Shulchan Aruch. You're not allowed to eat bread from a goy. There are places where they would buy bread from a goisha baker, where there's no Jewish baker available, or even yes, but it's not as good quality. If it's from a private owner, from a private baker, that or from the shop themselves, no. Now, those who say that when there's no baker available, you're even allowed to buy from a balabais, no, that's a separate thing. But meanwhile, what we're seeing is there is a little bit of leeway to be able to buy bread from a paspal from a gosha bakery um, when there's no when when it's better quality, etc. So that's a yes oimrim, and that's where those these. Uh, these, these, uh, so you, some people might be make or take a bit of lenient view. I just want to say, certainly, as Chassidim, we don't go for this. And I mentioned this story before, sorry, I didn't put it online, that Rabbi Chitrik Kalvashalm, in his stories, his Rishimas Dvorim, he has a story of when it was the Rebbe was in Rastov, as in, let's say, going back 100 years ago, approximately a bit, a bit more than 100 years ago. After 19, but then 1918, yeah, during during the uh, revolution, etc. So they never moved from Lubavitch to Rostov, and they see them ask the cross question. There is, there is a, a a Jewish baker in Rostov on the other side of town, but that Jewish baker doesn't wash Negevas. There is a there's a Goisha baker just around the corner, so who doesn't need to wash Negevas? So when you, if a person didn't wash Nagelwasser, so there's a Ruach HaTumah. So perhaps they should Dafke buy from the Goy, who doesn't have a Ruach HaTumah, rather than buying from the Yid, who didn't wash Nagelwasser's Ruach HaTumah. And the Rebbe said, better buy from the Yid, because this is a Ruach HaTumah, for this one is, is, is the Tumah Mamash. So he, he preferred to buy from the Yid, who didn't wash Nagelwasser, rather than buying from the Goy, which... Uh, as you can see, there's heterium, yeah, etc. And yet he insisted on going to buy from the uh, Jewish baker, despite the, the uh, you say, apprehensions there. So certainly it's not something which we would go for, but there are those people out there who 
are going to take that lenient view, follow the lenient view, and okay, let's go for our last thing. Now someone's asking, what about Duche de Sakino? Um, yes, but Duche de Sakino, when it cuts through a food, if you cut an onion with a fleshic knife, so then the onion becomes fleshic. But then there's also there's the there's the uh, fluid in the food is, which is which is interacting. But if you if it's just if you're rubbing if you'd rub a a flesh, a, a, a trefer knife and a kosher knife, rub them one against the other and they're both dry, then it would not make one one would make not make the other one trefer. Right. Um, the last thing which we had is. Uh, does the chazan answer Omen at Birchas Chayanim? So although in the Gemara it says the chazan should not answer Omen when he's leading Birchas Chayanim because he might lose track, but it's brought in Shukhan Aruch that nowadays, especially if you're holding a siddur in front of you, so then you keep, you keep your finger in the place, whatever doesn't say about keeping your finger in the place, but you can, you can keep track. It's not so much you have to rely on your memory, and therefore the chazan does answer Omen um, between you know after each of the three brachas in Avichasatayra. We have another couple of minutes. So then just to finish off the word of the Rebbe on Rav Yosef. We learned this recently from Rav Sochim. Rav Yosef is saying and on the Shavuos he would say that they should make for him a a uh, a quality calf of Gishmaka meat. And he says if not for this day of Matan Torah how many Yosefs there would be in the shukah that would be in the marketplace? What does it mean? What's so special about this day? So Rashi says, that I've learned Torah, Rush Matan Torah, I've learned Torah and have been, have been elevated. And there are many other people in the street who are called Yosef. If I wouldn't have learned Torah, what's the difference between me and them? The Rebbe talks about why it's the emphasis of shukah, why it's, what's the shukah? And basically the explanation is that the whole achievement of Martin Torah, the Torah was, was he didn't learn Torah before also. He always had Torah. It's Ryan, the, 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 who knew the parts of Torah. So what's the Chiddush of Martin Torah? So there's a famous idea of the El Yoinim and Tachtoinim, to bring Kedush into this world. That was a new by Martin Torah. Until then, there was like this divide that, uh, that the, that the uh, physical will not become impregnated, so to speak with the spiritual, and after Matan Torah, you write at the mezuzah, so it has a kedusha, etc. You bring kedusha into this world. So that's the emphasis of the shukah, that there is idea of, and Yosef, Yosef means to add, to influence. And there's a new word in English called influences. And so you've got a lot of people who say, I'm an influencer. So they are Yosefs. Now there can be Yosefs who do good things, not to be totally, uh, you know, cynical. It could be they are inspiring to good things, and that's good. Yeah, they're, they're Yosefs, but they are Yosefs, and they are in the shuk. But what what is their influence uh, achieving? Whereas Rav Yosef, who learns Torah, so their their Yosef, their in their influence is something that's just within the shuk. But Rav Yosef, he says, because he learned Torah, therefore he's able through Torah to have. A, an, a, uh, a spiritual input into the shukha and for that he was has the, every reason to celebrate and that's why in Shavuos especially uh, other Yom and Tovim may be an option if a person doesn't want to uh, 
it doesn't want to eat, wants to fast, he maybe have a permission. But Dafka and Shavuos, we want to show that we are thankful to Hashem for giving us the Torah. Therefore, Dafka, one should celebrate in the Gash Mizdek away. Um, someone is asking, does the Chazan answer the Omen of the Baruch's Am Yisrael B'Avo? I don't know. I'll have to look that up. All right, I wish you all a good Yom Tov. Oh, baby, I'm out of it. 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 I'